this morning we're going to wrap up this series, which, uh, thanks for your feedback, those of you in those book groups and reading the book. I understand it's been somewhat helpful, so we're grateful to get to be a part of that. Uh, this morning I, I want to wrap this conversation up, and it's really, it's really, really just have one trick this morning that I'll try to come at from a few different angles, but it's this question of, uh, to what extent is it important to Jesus that, like, that we're high-view people? Uh, and when we face the reality that we can, we can have a low view of humanity or a high view, how, how much of the gift is it that, that we bring to the table is, is being high view kinds of people? Now, that might be a foreign phrase for you or a foreign concept. I learned it first from my friend Brian Hopkins. He's a guy that I met first when I was 19 years old, and we've shared a lot of life together. He was in our wedding. I helped with his wedding. I've worked for him in different seasons. I've interned under him. And as I said a couple weeks ago in this series, there was a season of our friendship where it just kind of went on hiatus. And in hindsight, uh, the only reason we survived was because when I went negative, he didn't. It involved his moving, and there was some separation. And then we came back together to go to grad school together, and that was quite a gift for several years. We spent a lot of time in Portland together. But I realized when we were there together that part of, part of the reason why there was this season where I just, I just frankly lost respect for Brian, and, and we've talked about this, but I, I figured out that the reason for that was, was I, I had myself convinced that he was like kind of a slimy, and I don't mean to say that all politicians are slimy, but he just, I, he started to give me that vibe, that he was the type of guy that you didn't really know what he thought because he, he said what, he, what everybody else wanted to hear. And that was the story I was telling myself, and I think the reason why I convinced myself that is because there, there was parts of him about him that I knew and knew well. There were certain beliefs and values that he had that I knew he had, and yet I would watch him interact with people who had very different views, and, and he was kind. And I know it sounds absurd, but it just it kind of threw me off, and I got to this place where I just I didn't trust that what I was seeing was, was what was real. And so it was when we were back in grad school, we always had this one-credit class. Uh, George Fox had this high value to making sure that we weren't just learning leadership in the Bible, but that we were doing our own work. And so in one of those one-credit classes, I was in a small group with him, and we spent a lot of time online together. And I don't exactly remember what the class was or even what the question was, but I remember I just went there and I asked him the question. And I kind of gave some of that background, and ultimately my question was, Brian, I don't get it. Because no matter who I see you interacting with, even if I know like there's aspects of them that drive me crazy, or even if I know that there's values that they have that are different than yours, you're, you're constantly kind. And so I just, it's like, how do you do it? And I've obviously not forgotten uh, the first thing he said is he said, well, Adam, I didn't know I had to go through examinations like this until I was 50. You know, <laughs> you know that kind of an exam. I thought that was funny. <laughs> And then he said, here's what I do. He said, I, I work really hard. Anytime I meet somebody or anytime I interact with anybody, I try to identify something about them that I like, and I just dwell on that. And then he said, and this is where I learned this idea, I'm just convinced that Jesus calls us to live with a high view of people. Here's the question that I want to ask this morning is, what if one of the real dangers of this season that we're emerging from and the trauma that comes with it. And it wasn't just a COVID trauma, it was a political election cycle that was incredibly intense, and then a, a summer of racial injustice issues that were also intense, and opinions everywhere, and Facebook galore. What if one of the real dangers of this season is people who entered it as, as high-view people will exit it as low-view people? 
And, and what's, what's the value of doing the work to make sure that, that we stay high view people? I mean, I would put it to you like this. Think of, think of the people, who's the person, let me say it this way, who's the person in your life? Maybe it's a current relationship, maybe it's a past one. Who's the person in your life who for a season, like they or, or that, as long as that relationship existed, like they thought of you as better than you thought of yourself? And it can almost create an imposter syndrome if you've been in, had that kind of a coach or that type of a friend or that kind of a spouse or that kind of a parent, whatever. But like, you knew that it, like, you couldn't live up to how well they thought of you. Now let me ask you this, were they naive? Because there's probably a season when you were convinced that they were naive and that's where we can live with this thought of like, if you really knew me, you wouldn't like me. But is it possible they really did know you and they weren't naive they just, they just made a value-based decision. Or, or think of it this, who's the person in your life that when, they, when you know that you're working with them, when you know that like, you have a classroom next to their classroom, when you know that you're going to be on their team, when you know that they're coming over for dinner, like instantly you just have more energy. Who's that person that, that just has this graciousness, this optimism, this kindness, this high respect for others that you're just always grateful when you get to be around them. And again, because I think part of the, part of the issue here is we go like, yeah, but then that, I just become this naive kind of like, oh, everything's positive and that's not true. Like, are, are those, is that person naive? Or are they, have they made a decision despite what they know about humanity and life or your work field? I mean, we're all facing this. I, I'm convinced that one of the real opportunities of COVID is this vocational refinement. Uh, because maybe pre-COVID, you had a job that funded your hobbies and paid your mortgage. But it just stands out to me like if that's still why you do what you do, then you're probably looking for something else to do. Like when you started your career, you were the high view person. When, when, when you got your first job, you were that person. And I think we all know how we can get beat up and get that beat out of us, but, but what if the Spirit of Christ, quite frankly, would, would have us fight for that? Uh, there, there's a sign in town that, that captures this for me. It's, it's at the Blackfoot, which is a brewery, and it's, I get some of you have issues there, so I'm not trying to create stumbling blocks. Um, but at the Blackfoot, and, and I, I've over the years got to know the leadership of that place, so I think that's all the more kind of made me attuned to this sign. But... Uh, it'll come out again this spring, I'm guessing. They have, a, they have a whiskey barrel planter that sits outside their front door. And in that planter is a sign, and on the sign is a picture. And it's a, ki- it's a picture, it's like a black and white picture of a kid, like newspaper era, like think Oliver, uh, the theatrical production with the, whatever those hats are called, that, you know what I'm talking about. And the kid is probably 10 years old, and he's smoking a cigarette. And the sign says, if you see this kid would you please ask him to stop throwing his cigarette butts in the flowers? And I love that sign, in part because to me it embodies what I know about that organization and the way they want to treat people, but in part because I've worked at the office that had the refrigerator where all the signs, don't, don't, don't. Like, like there's this disposition that we can all develop. What I think is brilliant about the sign is to me it indicates there was a frustration. You, you could call it even a dysfunction. There was a disrespect but there was also an internal conversation that, that, that fought for kindness and optimism and a high view of people rather than the kind of mean-spirited policy that can so quickly get put on something like a flower planter. What's the value? 
In, the, in that book, Power of Bad, if you're reading it, I think it's in the second chapter, there's this one study that they reference where this, in this case, they wanted to figure out why couples stay together. And as best I could tell, they didn't differentiate married or dating. Uh, they just wanted to figure out over the course of this study, and I think it was a four-year study, how, what are the indicators that we can grab hold of that indicate whether or not a relationship made it? And one of the things they did at the front end of, the, of this time frame was they had couples separate from one another take surveys uh, first of themselves, like they just kind of said, I can't remember exactly how it was described, but it was more or less like, describe your strengths and weaknesses. And then they had you do that for your partner, for your spouse. And what they found when they zoomed out was at the end of the study, those couples that were still together, one of the strongest indicators that they could find from that work was that the couples that were still together, actually, like the, the wife thought better about the husband than the husband did himself. And conversely, the husband thought better about the wife, as indicated by what they wrote, than the wife did herself. In fact, Baumeister sums it up this way. He says this. Go to that next slide. Thanks, Holly. The, the most unrealistic couples, so paradoxical, the most unrealistic couples, the ones who idealize their partners, giving them higher ratings than the partners gave themselves, are the ones most likely to remain satisfied and stick together over the course of the study. Now, if you're like me, you want to nuance that because could this lead to abuse? Could this lead to abusive power? Yes, yes, there's, all, there's, there, there's a ditch on both sides of this. But I think the conversation that we're talking about here is default position. And, and, and how valuable is it to live with a, with a high view of others? There's, there's a particular place in the text that to, to me has always stood out. This is one of those areas where, man, I've... I've spent a lot of time trying to find commentators. I even bought a, commenta a commentary from Jerome recently for a series that I'm working on, which is like the 400s, because I wanted someone to, to speak more robustly to this text, and it's just, there's not a lot said. But the text is in the end of chapter two of the Gospel of John, and the context of John is, John, John writes his Gospel last, and it seems like part of what he's doing is intentionally different than what the other three Gospel writers did. But at the end of chapter two, after Jesus has accomplished some pretty remarkable things. He's turned wine, water into wine. He's went to the temple and kind of thrown things around. Like people are kind of stirring around him. There's this idea of like, he might be the quarterback of the future kind of vibe. And here's the way it says it at the end of John. It says this, when he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. And then watch this, but Jesus on his part would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about anyone for he himself knew what was in everyone. Now, why does John give us this? We don't, we don't get this particular phrase from the other gospel writers. Why does John do it? Well, as, as one important nuance, but just to be fair, uh, remember this is a worldview. The Jewish people had a worldview that said only God really knew the heart. So it seems that part of what John is doing here is saying, see, Jesus was God because Jesus, like Jeremiah 17.10, talks about God who can see hearts, and Jesus could do that. But then just stop and ask, what are the implications of this text? Like, is Jesus naive? Does he operate under the assumption that if he does right by people, they'll do right by him? Does he operate under the assumption that if you treat students well, students will treat you well? Does he operate under the assumption that, that if you enter into your career field and you have the right idea in mind and you treat people well, then it'll come back to you in spades? Does Jesus expect that people will, will return kindness with kindness? 
Like there's a strong implication here, I think, or observation. Because on the one hand, what the text seems to be saying is Jesus knew full well what people are capable of. He knew how mean a sixth grader could be. He me- knew how mean a coach could be. He knew how, how, how much you could be taken advantage of by a boss or a field or a sector. He, he knew. Was Jesus naive? Well, clearly John seems to be saying, no, Jesus wasn't naive. He knew way before the cycle began. And yet, I was actually talking to, to a friend who works with some of our students, and I, I said, you know, after the first service, I said, this, this is like, like you know that, that this student is going to do something heinous to your family in five years, and yet you serve and love them anyway. Like, that's the story, isn't it? There's this giant and yet. Because how did Jesus live? And maybe that's the question. Did, did Jesus treat people in light of what he knew people would ultimately do to him? To, to, to me, it's, it's, it's huge. And this is why, for me, I'm so grateful to, to have been influenced in my early following of Jesus' years to just focus on the Gospels, focus on the Gospels. I think Paul's important. I think the New Testament's important. I think the Hebrew Bible's important. But I'm so grateful. In fact, I think on a short list of the best spiritual advice I ever was given was when Ray Vanderland said, if you're not reading from the Gospels every day for multiple years at a time, then you're just not going to be a disciple, which is really harsh words. I wouldn't want to say it that way. But I took him seriously. And, and there was a several-year span where I read from the Gospels every day and at least a Gospel a month. And here's where I'm grateful for that. It centers me, not in lots of the other stuff that, that I could be centered in, but in the person of Jesus. And I'm not suggesting that my, my view of him is perfect. But I will say, man, if, if you're on a journey and you've not just spent multiple years reading through God, the Gospels, please go there because I think that's what brings to the surface this incredible paradox. Jesus knew what people were capable of. And yet at almost every turn, yes, there are exceptions, but at almost every turn, he assumed the best, or at least he treated people with this incredible gentleness and kindness. I think it probably raises questions about how in our own sector, in our own vocation, we've got to have healthy outlets to kind of process the abuse that we experience within them, but, but the answer is not to become cynical and jaded. And I think that's the question that I'm trying to ask this morning. Will we allow this season to cause us to emerge cynical, bitter, angry, assuming the worst, not the best? Or will we fight for something more than that? Was Jesus naive? Or did Jesus have a high view of people? And and, and to me, one of the best examples, if we're just to get real specific, is in the Gospel of Matthew, there's this famous moment, we're actually going to dig into this pretty deeply next month, around Passover. And in Matthew 26, 20, I just want to jump kind of mid-meal. And it says, when it was evening, he took his place with the twelve, that's Jesus, and while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Now, question, who's going to betray Jesus? And again, I think this gets at the point, because technically the answer is everybody. Like, there's twelve men sitting around the table, uh, that 
All of them are going to betray him. In just a little bit, he's going to go, hey, I'm about to go experience the worst thing ever. Would you pray? And they can't do that. One of them, not very long ago, said, oh, Jesus, I'll die with you if I have to. And yet he's nowhere to be found in Jesus' moments of greatest need. Another one seems to have fled naked because someone got a hold of his collar and he was so committed to leaving Jesus that he left his clothes behind. There's this weird sense of like, so, so again, I think it's worth just sitting with this idea. Like, what's about to happen wasn't, wasn't a new idea for Jesus. It's like he knew all along, and yet he did it anyway. But and I suppose in a specific sense, we know that he's talking about Judas. And if you skip over to when Jesus was arrested, which is just hours removed from this, jumping over to 47, watch this. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him. At once he came up to Jesus and said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And here's the part I want to highlight. Watch Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you're here to do. Like, what has to happen? What work has to occur between us and the Spirit of God to respond to such a wicked act by still being kind? To me, it's, the, it's, this, it's this tight look at just Jesus and the way he operated with, with a high view towards people. Was he naive? What was he like? I think it's Dr. Cloud who says you could summarize the perspective of most couples on the day they get married by saying one member of the marriage is looking at the other going, they're perfect, they'll never change. And the other is looking at the other person saying, I can fix them. Like that's naive. Was Jesus naive? And if he wasn't, then is it possible that, that Jesus, he just had this value? You know, 12 years ago, we, we started a church, the first series we ever did. Um, I'm pretty sure it was the first series. In September of 2009, we had three weeks before grand opening in September, and we did a series called High Views. And we said then, what would it be like to be a church that has a high view of God, despite the suffering and the mystery, a high view of people, and a high view of ourselves? It wasn't long after that, a few years, I was, I was working, uh, we were working with a, a particular leader, uh, and I don't, it's hard to describe without being unkind, but there was just a leader that was really unkind to work with. There was red tape everywhere. The whole culture of, it was kind of a partnership thing. The whole culture was, in my opinion, toxic and, and assuming the worst and red tape everywhere and lots of no's. And I remember, I mean, I got really frustrated with this person and probably shared it with more people than was healthy. But at some point, I don't remember who it was, at some point, somebody pointed something out to me and it was this. Adam, that person has been working with the public for 35 years. And when they were a few years into their career, they were probably just as optimistic and kind as, as you think you are now. But the real challenge is be in public space put a towel over your arm, try to do right by people for three and a half decades. Experience the ways people are like unthankful, like were ungrateful, where they're unkind, where they, this was the type of thing where I just have no doubt there was people trying to take advantage and hide things and, and, and steal things and just, it, just it, it would be a tough spot. And there was this realization of it would be a work of God to emerge 30 some years into probably any vocation 
and emerge as kind and high view as you entered. And I guess that's the question that I'm trying to ask. We started talking early on in this COVID experience. I think we're in a church plan. And frankly, I think it's bearing itself out very, uh, in a very neat way. Uh, the little refrain in my head is, there's some beautiful things happening around here. But I wonder if we've not circled back to a very familiar intersection. Are we going to be a high-view community? And are, are we going to do the hard work of, again, not, not, not being stupid and finding healthy boundaries? I get there's, there's nuances. But to live with a, a high view of others. The image in my head, and I don't know if this is helpful, but it's been helpful for me this week, is, you know, when pipes freeze, like, in some ways that's bad, but really that's not the worst part of it, right? Like, if, if the pipe to your spigot outside freezes, you, you probably won't even know it. That the real danger is when things start to thaw. And I don't know about you, but I get the sense that, like, COVID, it, things are starting to thaw, Way back last March, the, price, the, the pipes very quickly froze solid and we've all been in kind of survival mode and trying to figure it out. And there's this sense that, that I see all around me now like things are starting to thaw. But it's also a reminder, it's, it's in the thawing that the cracks are exposed and the real pain happens. N.T. Wright called this. At the very beginning of COVID, N.T. Wright said, as a culture, we've not dealt with this kind of pent-up grief since World War II. But here's to me what's standing out, is to whatever extent that analogy has any meaning, what I'm hearing from myself, and frankly when I go on walks with people and listen to to so many of you, I'm wondering if maybe one of the the biggest cracks is if if left to ourselves, we'll, we'll emerge low view people cynical towards people of certain political parties or certain persuasion. I mean, there's a million different reasons to be cynical. But I think the question is, are, are we going to do the work to make sure that we emerge high-view people? And, and, and is that the way Jesus would have us live? I think it's good to maybe take just one quick reminder at what the story is. It starts with Adam, moves into Abraham, goes to a guy, like, a guy named Moses and a whole family called Israel. And the story is actually kind of simple. A God who has higher hopes for people than they have for themselves. A people who can almost never live up to that. Who are perpetually causing themselves and others harm. And a God who matches their toxicity with kindness. Grace. Paul says, it's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to Repentance. A Christ who is born not to a people who set the stage perfectly because they deserve it, but quite the opposite. So I guess my question to you is, is uh, to what extent is it important to you uh, that you're a high-view person? To what extent is it important to you that you think Jesus calls you to be a high-view person? And are, are you doing the internal work, the relational work, to make sure that tomorrow morning what those students get, what those patients get, what those clients get, what those friends get, what those teammates get, what that family gets, is not a cynical, angry, bitter, suspicious person, but a person who's done the work, who has the healthy outlets, who ultimately looks at people and sees value and worth despite what reciprocates in your direction. I'd like to pray. 
God. Lord, I just, I would ask that uh, you'd make us attentive to the pains that would cause us to be cynical, uh, that you'd make us um, self-aware of where grief needs to happen and where repentance needs to happen and where hard conversations around hurts need to happen, and yet at the same time, God, that you would, and really through that process, uh, that you'd make us the kind of community members, the kind of business owners, the kind of students, the kind of friends, the kind of nurses, the kind of teachers, the kind of administrators who bring light, uh, who, who, who aren't naive, who, who aren't simplistic, but who understand that we follow a God who, who, who does us the favor of having a high view of us and thus, and, and, and thus invites us to extend that to others. We love you, God. Amen. If you would like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook and Instagram.